The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Dr. Brueggemann is a leading Old Testament scholar, authoring over 130 books and countless other works. He is an expert that has informed and shaped the minds of souls and countless ministers, academics, armchair theologians, followers of Jesus, and skeptics alike. Dr. Brueggemann, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. I'm glad to get to talk with you, Andy. Good. Now, how are you dealing with this personally before we get to all the theological matters? Well, I'm, uh, I'm staying in. I'm, I'm under house arrest. My, uh, since I'm very old, my wife is uh, very protective of me and uh, doesn't allow me to go into stores or anything. And uh, so I'm hanging out and uh, doing what I do at my desk. <laughs> I'm sure you've got plenty of books to read or puzzles to to engage your time. That's right. Yep. You you haven't been binge watching any shows that we need to be aware of, have you? Uh, No, we tried watching uh, Broad Street on Netflix and uh, we thought it was so outrageous, outlandish after a while that we kind of quit on it. So no. Yeah. Yeah. I I wouldn't take you. I'm a news junkie, so we watch a lot of news. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wouldn't peg you for a, a Tiger King person. I, I personally haven't been able to, uh, to bear through watching that either. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, you know, I wonder for you, you know, when did the severity of this crisis register with you? Well, I think, uh, I think I became aware of it when we all became aware of it, uh, which I guess for me was about the March 14th, somewhere about then when it began to sink in on me that this is, is uh, very serious and very close at hand and very deep and very broad and uh, attention must be paid. Well, you've obviously been thinking about this theologically um, because you have a, a new resource out, Virus as a Summons to Faith, Biblical Reflections in a Time of Loss and Grief and Uncertainty. This work is an invitation to think and speak critically, theologically, and biblically about this current crisis so that the community of faith can maintain its missional identity with boldness and joy. I know this might seem like an obvious question as a person who has addressed many of the crises we faced in the last couple of decades, but um, for you, why was it important to to address this current crisis in a theological way? Main work is trying to uh, help uh, pastors and local congregations uh, think critically and knowingly about the Bible, uh, and uh, it seemed to me that. Uh, if we were going to do that, somehow we had to ask, uh, how do we read the Bible given the crisis that we are now in? And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's an easy connection. And uh, I don't know that I've made the best connections, uh, but I gave it my best shot. Uh, and I think that's what we do uh, when we try to do fresh interpretation and uh, see how it comes out. And what I hope is that uh, the little book I've written uh, will be of some uh, uh, help uh, for, peop for re people who read it in uh, their own practice of faith. So uh, that's kind of what I consistently try to do. Yeah. Now, as an Old Testament scholar, you are aware that this is not the first time that plague has hit our world. And, and as you look back at this plague, and maybe more specifically the, the Exodus narrative, yeah. What do you think the writers are trying to communicate about our world, about our society, and how God functions in all of these things? Well, I should say at the outset that what I did, uh, Andy, was to uh, make, make a link between our, the virus and the, the biblical use of the word pestilence or plague. And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a tight connection, but it's, uh, it's an imaginative connection. So uh, to, to look at the Exodus plagues, uh, I think, uh, is a legitimate way to try to make that connection. Uh, and I think that uh, the plagues in the book of Exodus uh, are uh, a witness uh, to the incredible power of God uh, in human history, uh, that God uh, mobilizes all of creation and all creatures uh, to accomplish his purpose. And I should add that that is a very uh, pre-scientific way of thinking. Uh, and I don't think we can just uh, take that at face value, given what we know about scientific reasoning. So we have to uh, have some imaginative playfulness about how we make a maneuver between. Uh, but that's what I've tried to work at. 
Now, hopefully uh, we all have a high view of, of humanity and value human life, except I think one of the traits of human existence is that we often forget that we're uh, cohabitants of millions of other organic creatures. Um, in the book, you wrote about creation groaning. Um, is this a virus part of creation groaning? Uh, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there in, in what you were writing. I, I think uh, that's uh, entirely possible. I think that uh, uh, in its pre-scientific -pre mode, Uh, the Bible imagines that all creatures in creation are lively agents that are connected to God. They're not inanimate objects, but they have personal qualities. So you can imagine a radish or a porcupine uh, having agency and wanting to be related to God, so that if a, if a radish or a porcupine suffers, uh, their proper work is to call out to God. So the, the biblical language about all creation groaning uh, believes that all creatures have this capacity to interact with God. And uh, certainly groaning uh, in the book of Psalms is one of the major ways in which faith is expressed uh, in uh, the Bible and in ancient Israel. Uh, so I don't think it was a, a big imaginative move in the Bible uh, to imagine that, that all creation is groaning. And uh, I think pertinent to your question, uh, I think that's a legitimate way uh, to do it. And if you think now that with the, with the uh, shutdown uh, of uh, so much of our industry and commerce, uh, one of the things we're seeing is that the atmosphere is is clearing, the, the smog is lifting. So Beijing even had a clear sky after having such smog that you couldn't see anything. Uh, so you could factor it out if you wanted to be playful uh, that the radishes and porcupines in Beijing have been groaning out to God, I suppose in Chinese, and that God has heard and has acted. So uh, you, you cannot flatten that out in the scientific certitude uh, but if we're willing to be playful about it, uh, we can factor out that kind of reasoning. Well, you answer my next question, which is, you know, what is Walter Brueggemann's favorite vegetable and mammal? But you've indicated that it's a porcupine <laughs> and, and a radish. So <laughs> Actually, you know, all, the, all those years of reading your scholarly writing, you know, in the Old Testament, I just, uh, I was, I always wondered that. So now I know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wonder, you know, taking this a, a step further, you know, depending on the theological worldview of our listeners, some might subscribe to God's hand in the causation of this virus. Uh, what, what say you on, on such matters, especially as it relates back to uh, the plagues of the Old Testament and our, and our current yeah. pandemic? Well, uh, I think it's very uh, tricky and uh, uh, one has to be very careful about that. So I, I would be reluctant to draw the conclusion that God has caused the virus, uh, but I would be willing to entertain the thought uh, that God is working in and through the virus to accomplish some of God's purposes. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't think that God is uh, uh, mechanically in control of everything in the world, and some of it just happens. 
uh, President Trump said he didn't think the virus was an act of God. He said, he said he thought it was something that happened. Well, if it's something that happened, then I think that God can make use of it. And it appears to me that God's use of the virus is uh, uh, creating uh, among us a new neighborly sensibility uh, so that in, in our town, all kinds of new initiatives of neighborly generosity are being undertaken that would never have happened uh, without the virus. And uh, what the future is to those neighborly gestures, I don't know, but it's quite remarkable that those sorts of things are happening. And I am willing to imagine uh, that that's part of God's uh, work uh, in and through uh, this uh, dreadful crisis. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experienced and highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. I want to come back to that thought here um, in just a few moments that you were just uh, speaking on. But um, Peter Block said, uh, the virus is God's way of ending consumerism. It is the end of a narrative of globalism. Um, what do you think um, is God's intent in allowing this virus to take hold globally? And what is God teaching humanity through this crisis? Uh, well, I, I think the, the Bible often thinks that uh, God uh, responds harshly to human Hebrews or to human pride. Uh, and when we imagine in our uh, technological uh, capacity uh, that we can have the world any way we want it and we can do anything we want to do with it, uh, the Bible imagines uh, that God sets uh, harsh curves and limits to that kind of arrogance and pride. And I could imagine, this is all an act of imagination, I could imagine uh, that, that this amounts to a curbing of our incredible reliance on fossil fuel uh, and our willingness to uh, uh, abuse and destroy our own uh, living environment uh, by our excessive dependence on fossil fuel. So I could make those kind of connections uh, as long as they are not pressed with too much certitude and precision. And I think that's what Peter Block meant by that. It was, a, it was a rather extraordinary statement by Peter because he is, as I said in my book, a, a secular non-practicing Jew, and he's not given to much uh, theological <laughs> claim. Uh, but uh, I, I think he's on to something important about that. Yeah. And what we are seeing is uh, it may be very costly for society, but we're seeing a huge cutback on consumerism. And uh, we are, in general, making the discovery 
that a lot of the commodities we pursued turn out to be not very important for us. Hmm. Yeah, Curse, the kind of adverse side of that is that, um, you know, one could potentially make the argument that the loosening of our consumerism is at the cost of, of jobs, you know? So, yes. you know, what, what role can we play as followers of Christ, as the church, and helping reshape that narrative to give new opportunity to people who now face the crisis of, of job loss as a result of our right. of lack of consumerism. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm no uh, expert about any of that, but it does seem to me that we have to reimagine our, our economy differently, uh, which, which really means that the wealth of all of our society has to be mobilized for all of the neighbors. And I suspect in the long run, it means uh, that we have to imagine uh, the creation of a very uh, different set of jobs for employment uh, that may not be so destructive of, uh, of our natural environment. And I think uh, we're only at the beginning uh, of trying to take responsibility to think in a very different way. I do not think that we're going back uh, to the old normal uh, in any wholesale way. And I don't think we know uh, how we're going to do that in the future. Uh, but I think uh, really new thinking, uh, new critical thinking is really required about that. Of course, this raises more questions, and you alluded to this earlier. When crisis strikes, the best and worst of people comes out. And That's often, right. um, you know, and especially during this time, we form charitable and compassionate habits as a society, such as uh, care and love for people who are, um, you know, taking care of their neighbors, uh, people who seem to be doing that in a genuine fashion out of this right. uh, belief in the social distancing practices that we've been asked to do, supporting those who are at the front lines, essential workers who are doing these things. Right. The cynic in me wonders how long it will last when we reemerge into whatever this new normal. Um, do you need to convince me otherwise? Well, I wouldn't try to convince you. I, I think there's reason for skepticism about that. Uh, and I think it depends on uh, whether we can really learn any lesson, lessons uh, that we continue to remember uh, or whether we will uh, immediately fall back into our old ways. And I don't think anybody knows how that's going to shake out. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I, I think that uh, the level of uh, fear and anger uh, is also evoking uh, desperate actions uh, that are not very happy for anyone. Uh, so I think it's a, a very hard call uh, to know how this is all going to shake out. Yeah. I'm reminded of a, a passage uh, from Second Timothy where Paul uh, reminds uh, Timothy not to have a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of, of power and love and self-discipline. And he also talks about that, you know, he has been giving these gifts equipped by the Holy Spirit within him. So I wonder, you know, in many regards, you know, this God-given um, tendency towards compassion and, and charity, you know, is something within us. So how might the church, uh, to use Paul's words, fan the flame of the Spirit to help uh, promote this uh, healthy fire and drive within people to care for their neighbors in such a, a real way? 
Well, I think, uh, I think we need to uh, uh, sing and pray and talk this language. Uh, I think we need to uh, celebrate and salute uh, places where neighborliness stuff, stuff occurs. Uh, I think we need to organize politically uh, with some sustained political will uh, to try to let uh, those, uh, those concerns eventuate into policies. Uh, I think all kinds of different political and social and economic policies are possible if we have a sustained political will. Uh, so I think that one-on-one uh, -on -one neighborly acts of generosity are really important, but it's not enough. Uh, we live in a, in a very uh, predatory economy that takes advantage of the vulnerable, and uh, we really need policies uh, that will uh, devote our resources and our energies in very different kinds of ways. And I think the church uh, has a, a very important role to play uh, in that public action. Now you wrote, it is likely that every leader in a community of faith now faces an opportunity or responsibility or both to uh, comment on the current virus as it may be understood through the lens of critical faith, or conversely, to comment on how critical faith may be more poignantly understood through the lens of the current virus. As you look back over the span of your career, what other crisis and call for leadership can you compare to what clergy are facing right now? Uh, well, I don't think we've had anything of this depth and width. Uh, I think 9-11 was that sort of thing. And certainly in your neighborhood, Katrina was that sort of thing. Uh, and I suppose more locally, uh, there would have been others. Uh, uh, but I, I don't think, I can't think of anything that parallels this uh, in my lifetime with this impact. You know, as we as we continue to lead in this crisis, what can churches and faith-based partnership organizations and institutions of higher education do to better prepare clergy for the next crisis that comes? Well, I think, um, I think clergy have to be better read and better informed about political economy and those kinds of public dimensions of power and energy. Uh, and obviously the, the uh, counterpoint to that kind of uh, public dimension uh, is that uh, we need to work professionally clergy on our own disciplines of holiness and faithfulness. So the development of a, of a serious, honest piety uh, is really important. I think that serious, honest piety uh, protects us from signing on with any ideology uh, that distorts the gospel. Uh, and uh, we all have to keep working at that, I think, uh, more effectively than, than we have been in the past. Well, certainly, I'm, I'm not just saying this because we're literally looking at each other, but your good work has also helped ministers 
for many generations think theologically around crisis. And so I know we're uh, myself included along with many others are, are grateful for um, the commitment you've given to help us think critically um, and clearly about matters as, as they come. Um, crisis brings out, um, I, maybe a better way to say it, crisis brings about the deepest spiritual formation by necessity. It's either, I guess, sink or swim uh, when it comes to spiritual development during a time of crisis. So what spiritual formation practices uh, should people turn to during this time? Uh, well, I, I think obviously scripture study. Uh, and I think that uh, as much as possible, we need to do our scripture study in the presence of uh, people who have been left behind, uh, either the disabled or the poor, or in our society, blacks mostly. Uh, or gays, uh, so that we don't let our Bible study uh, simply draw too close to our own uh, social location. I think that is, uh, and I think very many local congregations sort of live in a cocoon of like-minded people, uh, and uh, we need some, uh, some uh, prompts from outside of our homogeneity about that, I think. I do want to say about the crisis, there are a couple books uh, that are suggesting that if you take the big chunks of scripture, uh, most of them were written in response to a traumatic event. So if you think about the exile of ancient Israel, or if you think about the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, 70 AD, uh, you can imagine that literature clusters around crisis points uh, and everybody who uh, who thinks responsibly feels obligated uh, somehow to respond uh, to those traumatic events and i think uh, ours is now a case in point as you think about the actual book that you've uh, written for uh, your readers how, what's your hope for the book how do you uh, how do you see people using it well, I hope it will uh, it will uh, invite and contribute to con to uh, conversations in local congregations. I hope it may uh, help some pastors to uh, take a fresh look at some uh, resources in the Bible. Uh, so I hope we can have a uh, a more broad based uh, critical conversation in the church, and uh, I want to make a little contribution to that. Well, I guess crisis causes you to write new books. Um, are there any other books that you have coming down the pipeline or any other work that we want to be aware of? Uh, well, I have, a, I have a, a book of prayers uh, coming out soon. I have a book of uh, volume of sermons just out. Uh, I have a, a little book out. I don't know whether you've seen it on uh, what I call faithful materiality. Uh, I'm near the end of my pipeline. So I'm 87, and uh, I probably figure if I haven't gotten it right by now, I probably won't. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if, if you're a true Old Testament scholar, then you're going to try to outdo Moses in years. So you're, you're just at the beginning of the pipeline. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, besides eating radishes and petting porcupines, what's the first thing you're going to be doing when we're given the all clear to go out? Well, I'm going to eat lunch and then uh, I'm going to get on my exercise bike. Uh, and then uh, uh, it doesn't happen many days, but today we have an actual copy of the New York Times. So I will spend uh, time reading that. And uh, I'm sort of done working for the day. I've been at it this morning and that's all I do. So that's all I can do. Yeah. Yeah. How about well, you, you? What are you going to do? Oh, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do when they, they raise the all clear and we, we go out, I, you know, probably hug people. I'm not supposed to hug, give people kisses. I'm not supposed to give kisses to, and just right. be glad to be around, around yeah. people again. Um, I know my, my two daughters and wife are going to be glad to see somebody else besides me, you know? That's right. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Yep. Well, for our listeners, if you want to pick up a copy of Virus as a Summons to Faith, you can find it on Amazon, both in digital and print form. Uh, if you want to stay connected with Dr. Brugemann, visit his website, walterbrugemann.com, and follow him on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Dr. Brugemann, thank you for being you and sharing yourself with all of us, especially now uh, during this disconcerting crisis. Thank you, Andy. It's great to talk with you, and uh, thanks for keeping at it. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.